Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they found healing. My guest today is Tim Brisson, an estate planning attorney in Auburn, California. He's also a man of many talents, which we'll get to in a minute. But Tim, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's it's absolutely an honor to be here. Thank you. So this podcast is a little bit more personal to me in that Tim and I actually got in touch with each other through my family. He oversees some of my family's estate affairs and also serves alongside my older brother as a substance abuse recovery pastor at 180 Church in Rockland, California. My brother's the youth pastor there. Um, he's quite... Uh, charismatic and outgoing, as you'll know, Tim, uh, very different from my personality, uh, even though we grew up together. Uh, but yeah. anyway, but Rockland's a great place, 180 Church. It's a great, wonderful community there. And Tim, you have your own band, right? A bluesy R&B type band? Yes. Yeah. And and, you, and your brother um, could play a little bit himself, by the way, and has a beautiful Gibson 335. <laughs> guitar and we keep trying to get him out to play with us and I think we're almost there. <laughs> yeah. But part part of my background uh was music and for a little bit of a time I played professionally and backed old blues legends of all things. Nice. And did a little bit of work there and then it was the guitar actually that that led me to your brother's church and I'm sure we'll get into that but music has been a big a big healing factor and a constant in my life from from the age of 14 on. That's that's wonderful, um, and I know that you're you also serve as a law enforcement chaplain in the Sacramento area, which we'll talk about as well. But the reason Tim's here today is to share his journey of overcoming alcoholism. He's been sober now for six years. Tim, is that right? Or how many yes. years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which is uh, you know something to be celebrated. You know, as someone who's seen a loved one firsthand struggle with the disease, I've seen the progressive nature of it. And, you know, that's kind of how it took hold in Tim's life. But Tim, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you become an estate attorney? I know your father was a serial inventor and um, you eventually became a patent attorney. Yes, my my father, um, pretty much every family hobby became a business. I grew up at the drag strip. My, my parents, if you watched American Graffiti, my parents actually met cruising in the East Bay where the movie wow. took place, right? Um, so I grew up at Fremont Drag Strip. Um, my dad was into CBs. He was into a bred dogs. And one of the things he did was he got into home stereos at the time in the late 70s 
early 80s and ended up inventing the technology and got a patent on the underlying technology for what became monster cables. If you've ever seen those speaker cables in a, in mm-hmm. a Best Buy or one of those um, stores, Circuit Cities, a lot of those box stores are gone now. Um, but he got a patent on that. And it was a business attorney that turned him on to a patent attorney and said, hey, you may want to see if you can protect this. And way back in 1981, my dad actually got a patent granted on a way of winding different wires of different gauges at different pitches, which was unknown at the time. Um, I, I ended up going into the Air Force in 1984 because um, I, my band did not get signed and sent mm-hmm. to uh, L.A. and Sunset Strip like everyone else around me did. Um, mm-hmm. And then so I, I ended up shoveling snow in northern Maine and wow, uh, watching the – and we defeated communism um, by keeping B-52s not, not frozen – in northern Maine. And from there, I went to the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and got a degree in engineering physics because my other love besides the guitar was flying model rockets. Wow. And then when I graduated there, I went to work for my dad and became an inventor myself. We started to file a bunch of patents. Um, I'm, I'm a named un- inventor on several patents now. And I looked at the, what these patent attorneys were doing, and that looked kind of interesting. And essentially, was writing big lab reports um, on interesting things. So I ended up going to law school at night at McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento mm-hmm. and graduated in uh, 1999 and got licensed in 2000. So I've been practicing law for, for 20 years now. Out of the gate, I was a patent attorney. I had the great distinction of practicing law in the South Lake Tahoe, of all places, representing great clients. I wrote a bunch of the original patents on Firewire 800, that ended up in the original iPod, so I was I was on the Apple Apple campus before the iPhone. Um, Cisco was a big uh, client of mine at the time. I got to wander up and down Silicon Valley and did a lot of cool things there. But it was when um, I took a partnership and got those golden handcuffs um, that things started to change. Alcohol was not a big part of my life. It really wasn't in my family much. Wasn't aware of it. And one of the things I, I think looking back, and, and I know some of your listeners have heard this, but I was of the generation where kids were to be seen and not heard, right? Mm-hmm. How many people have heard that? Mm-hmm. So I didn't grow up with a, a lot of skill set in dealing with my emotions or feelings or disappointments. And everything that I mentioned to you at this point was a success. I did well in college. I did well in law school. Um, was doing well in the career until I became a partner right after 9-11 and right after the NASDAQ took a, a tumble and we were starting to lose clients and it didn't work out the way I thought it was. At the same time, that career, I ended up litigating all over the, all over the country. I was always on an airplane uh, managing litigation nationwide. Either I was in the Bay Area either, um, with my clients my family was still in Auburn because we didn't want to move our kids, or I was on the East Coast with companies that I would end up practicing law in later, and I wasn't home, and I think there was there was some homesickness. I was missing it, and that's when I started to do what a lot of people did, and that was uh, have a glass of wine at night to wind down. That became two, and that became the bottle, mm-hmm. and that became very quickly, it became a, a major factor in my life. Yeah. What, what kind of... Uh hole did alcohol fill for you? Um, you know, was it, was it the stress of the job? Was it sort of a numbing 
Uh, was it missing your family? What was, what do you think drove you to it? I think when we don't know how to deal with our feelings, I think we want them to go away and numb them. So looking back, mm-hmm. that was probably one of the major, major factors. It was a way to pass time. It was a way to just to get through the night, to get through the day and start it all over again. Um, but probably, mm-hmm. probably just to quiet the brain, to numb it since I didn't know how to express those feelings or talk to anybody about them. And what that ends up doing is it makes you isolating. And no matter what substance we abuse, no matter what habit or hangup we have, you know, I, I, alcoholism was a very lonely and isolating disease for me as it is for many Mm -hmm. people. I was not the, uh, I I didn't go down to the, to the hotel lobby and party with everyone else. I was in my room alone. So it ended Mm -hmm. not only numbing me, but, but, ended up making me isolate as well. Mm. Yeah. And I know you, you directed me to a a study that was done in 2016, which was published by the journal of addiction medicine and researchers uh, surveyed nearly 13,000 licensed employed attorneys and found that nearly 21% of them screened positive for hazardous, harmful and potentially alcohol dependent drinking they concluded in that study that attorneys experienced problematic drinking at higher rates than other professionals and that mental health distress was also significant among attorneys. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, how does the job um, drive so many people? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough job. It's long hours, right? It's, um, tell me about it. You know, I, I think for, for a lot of people that are on that partner track, um, the, the big law, the culture is up or out. Mm. So you, you're expected to partner in seven years or you're out. So if you get licensed at 25, you've been, uh, uh, you did well in high school, probably the valedictorian. Maybe you didn't study engineering and physics, but maybe you were a poli-sci major or a business major got right into law school, what do you even know or have a life experience at at the age of 25, right? And now you're thrown into this, uh, the sausage factory, literally, and you're expected to bill 2,000-ish hours. And that's billable hours, not counting the unbillable hours. You're thrown into document review. You're thrown into the litigation machine. And you're supposed to have your life figured out by the time you're 32. Mm. I don't know what I'm, 32, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I think that pressure, plus the mentality, um, those of us that are called to law, you know, the law is a calling in a way. Mm. Um, and then, um, you know, we talked about my experience as law enforcement chaplain. We see the same thing with law enforcement officers. It's a very strong calling. And they begin to wonder if they're making a difference. They begin to wonder, have I been passed over for a promotion? Um, did I not test well? And there's some betrayal. So if you don't if you don't get what you think you're entitled to, you can actually feel betrayed by the partners. Mm. And I think that leads people to trying to shut their brain down as well. I think physicians experience it the same. And I can only imagine the financial planners out there right now whose calling is to help their clients do the best with what they have. Look at this environment right now, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you're making it, it's not just life and death decisions. Obviously, physicians make physical life and death decisions, but the decisions that we make for our clients can be just as important in terms of of justice for them, uh, righting their wrongs, and for some people, their retirement, their four hundred one ks, their money, 
this stuff that they have socked away, expecting it to be there when they need it. If it's suddenly gone, a financial planner can feel the same thing. So we self-medicate. Yeah. We don't want to bring it. We don't want to burden our family. We don't want to bring it. You know, it's nothing you want to talk to your spouse about, for example. Um, and you don't want to seem weak at work. So you're not talking to the other partner about any self-doubts that you have. Law enforcement certainly doesn't want to be weak in the briefing room or, or in the dressing room. Um, so they don't talk about it in the locker room. And we don't talk about it. We isolate. And then we ended up, end up like I was doing, was basically self-medicating. Now, as as what someone say, a real alcoholic, you know, one of the 15% that my, my body apparently processes it differently. So part of what I did was activate that part of me. And for me, um, at some point, two or three years into my drinking career, as we call it, um, mm-hmm. I couldn't stop. I was powerless to stop. Once I started, everything in the house was going to be drank or, or I passed out or, or something worse. So I activated that. A lot of people don't, don't have that, but, they, mm. uh, but abusing uh, alcohol can still have negative effects in their life. But its talons got into me um, that mm. way. Um, and it, it was no coincidence that it was right about the time that I'd invested money in the firm. Things weren't working out, and now you're now you're sitting here. What do I do? Yeah. At what point did you sort of hit hit rock bottom and and realize that you needed help? You know, I was I was on a ride along with the deputy, and he goes, "Why are these people doing this? You know, why can't they stop? You know." And I told him, I said, "Well, we all hit bottom when we stop digging." And he's driving, and he's looking at me, and he goes, "I'm going to use that one, Chaplain. We stop <laughs> digging. We stop digging. Yeah." Yeah. So for everyone, it's different. And this is one of the great mysteries of recovery is everyone's bottom looks different. Yeah, I'll tell you my experience in recovery. A lot of it has to do with, with at some point, we just get tired of disappointing our family. Mm. And f- for me, it was a family vacation and that I was apparently dead set to ruin. You know, that's what we do. We ruin family vacations. Um, and I was sitting there at breakfast with my youngest daughter and my wife, and they wanted to go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And we're staying in the same hotel room, so I really can't drink in front of them because I'm ashamed of my drinking, of course. I'm trying to mm-hmm. stop, but I can't. At this point, I'm in full alcoholic dependency, and my hands are shaking in the morning from withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even hold a fork. So here is this attorney. Um, at this point, I've been practicing, what, for 13, 14 years I'm, I'm actually making the most money in my career. I have multiple streams of income. Objectively, I'm doing fantastic. I'm managing patent litigation all across the country. I'm in-house in a publicly traded microcap. Um, I'm in a venture company, funded company at the same time with a common set of people. All outside indicators is I'm doing great, and I can't even put a fork on a pancake. Hmm. Wow. So you re- reach this point of powerlessness. Powerless as an attorney? Are you, are you kidding? I can sue you. I can subpoena you, right? Yeah. I'm subpoenaing. I'm sub- I'm signing subpoenas all, all month long, right? Um, so I go out to this beach in Monterey. My family goes into the aquarium without me because they don't want to see me. And I look up at the beach and the ocean and the sky, and I'm like, I got nothing. And that's when I, I leaned in on my spirituality. And I, I looked for God to a solution at that point. Really didn't have much of a name for him, other than I knew I knew him from physics. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I knew him from from uh, the the God of creation, as you will. And I sat there with my hands open, 
with nothing. My works weren't working, and I was at the end of that rope. And that was the beginning of, that's when I stopped digging, essentially, and I started to look around for a solution. Mm. And what was that solution for you? How did you get sober? So that has to do with music, right? Here we go with music again, right? So as a band leader, I had had some uh, some musicians that obviously had, had some issues mm-hmm. with uh, substances of one or another, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them had got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous. So I reached out and uh, picked up that phone, and that's when I reached out and asked for help. They call it picking up that 500-pound phone. It's the hardest mm-hmm. phone call you can make. And I told a friend that I knew that I was ready, and they took me to a meeting, mm-hmm. and that's uh, and 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 that's where it started. Yeah, I know. I know that organization has helped so so many people on the path. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is an organization that can be traced back to the Oxford Group, which is a Christian group in the early twentieth century, and that group practiced a formula of self improvement. Many many listeners may be unaware of this, but AA has roots in the financial services industry. It was actually co-founded by a stockbroker, a man mm-hmm. named Bill Wilson, who was committed for alcohol addiction. And he was amazed when he was visited by an old drinking buddy who was sober for several weeks under the Oxford Group teachings. But you know, AA is you know known the world over now, not just for its widespread nature and accessibility, but also for its 12-step program, uh, which, you know, Tim, you can probably speak to some of those, how some of those helped you. But what about AA helped you to find healing and to get get past the disease? Yeah, and I I think it's important to say I don't speak for AA. I currently don't hold any uh, service positions in AA. I have in the past. I've worked in the general service structure. Uh, My recovery about four years ago took a, a different turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be careful, and and but I want my testimony here today to be one of light and of attraction for those, and is to let them know that it has worked for me. There are other ways, but for me, the people that God had put in my life at that point, both the musicians and the gentleman that w- would become my first sponsor, who was a, a Navy SEAL of all people, wow. um, walked me through the through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that was authored by Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson was probably at at the um, what you might call he was a combination of what might be the first junk bond trader and private mm-hmm. equity broker. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and that was his yeah, that was his path, and and AA was formed um, after you know the, the financial crash, and there is a very telling quote in the big book about people looking at those stock tickers and down it went, and doesn't that mm-hmm. you know feel like uh, it could be today, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. What 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 it meant for me was seeing other people happy that had been through the same thing that I was. There was a process, you know. I'm a sucker for a good process. Um, there are these steps that you could work. It looked like it was achievable, but there were other people that had been there that know where I had been, and you know when you meet someone that's filled that hole that you have. And no judging, no shame. In fact, my story, since I did not get divorced, I did not lose my career, I did not lose my house, my kids were still talking to me, thank God. Um, um, My story, I didn't even know if I had earned my seat. (laughs) Mm. But others around me let me know that I was welcome. 
And then I think the patent attorney in me that unpacks inventions and puts them back together found that there was a, a faith a little bit greater than what you're able to talk about in the rooms of AA. Um, I still go to the occasional AA meeting, and I still keep in touch with those people. But I went down and, and found the Oxford group and began to do some of that reading, and that led me to really an explosion in my faith at that point. Yeah, and I know that you, you know, you also serve as a law enforcement chaplain, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, I'm sure you've got stories to tell there. But um, you were trained to help police officers deal with burnout and improve their mental wellness. You know, things that people in this industry, uh, you know, estate attorneys and financial advisors, could use some help with, um, mm-hmm. to say the least. What What are some of the things that you learned through that job that's helped uh, that m- might help listeners? coping with the things that they're struggling with right now, you know, anxiety, addiction, uh, you name it. So what, what law enforcement faces is this a condition that's called hypervigilance. And they're always looking for a, a risk out there. So they're trained to look at body language. They're trained to look at every scene and, and see where, you know, a potential attack could come from. And this hypervigilance state is hard to come down out of when you come home and want to sit there and hang with your family. Um, so one of the things um, that we work with them is to teach them how to leave that, you know, in the driveway. Mm-hmm. And what I see with professionals, what I the, the overlap that I see is that even though as an attorney or a financial planner, you may not be looking out for physical danger as a law enforcement officer is, you still have all of these things that standards that you're being held to. That is your metrics. What is the return? What all these things that I that I dealt with when I was in house, uh, month on month, quarter on quarter, your numbers. You know, what are you doing here? What are you doing there? And you're constantly vigilant. You pick up your phone, and there's numbers on there now, right? It's everywhere. You can't escape it. You turn on the TV. Your the, mm. the little stock ticker is going, and that can lead to uh, to you not being able to be present in your family's life. Mm-hmm. And it's you don't want to take these numbers home to your family, and you're sitting there on your couch, and you got your phone with you, and you're always looking at the phone or something like that. So one of the things that we we teach them is to try and put some boundaries on that, is to try and sit in the driveway and maybe pause for a minute, do some breathing exercises. If they're able to pray, we teach we can teach them how to pray to whatever the God is that they understand. And I, with law enforcement, I call it the great dispatcher in the sky, and then participate. Go inside. And, and be present with your family, which right now can be completely out of whack because maybe you're homeschooling your kids, right? Yeah. Many of the officers I right. work with on graveyard shifts work graveyard so they can take their kids to school in the morning. Well, now they're their teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe your life is in the same place. And and also understanding that your, your, your career, your calling changes over time. And it might be, it's being tested right now. I can only imagine if you're a financial planner that people have been calling <laughs> What am I supposed to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're yeah. looking to you for that advice. So you are absolutely being tested right now. But I want you to know out there that if you're being tested, these kind of situations, they're, they're, they're going to refine you and they're going to make you a better financial advisor. They're going to make you a better attorney. Just like these these times that are being tested with the officers, we tell them they're going to come out of this uh, doing much better police work than, than, than when they went in. Um, mm-hmm. we, we see cynicism. We see um, they feel betrayed if they don't get promoted. We talked about that with the partnership, you know, the up or out mentality. 
So I, I see a lot of similarities between high pressure white collar jobs um, and the and the and the hyper vigilance that I see with with officers. Yeah, and how how do you think your life experience overcoming alcohol has shaped who you are and the work that you do as an estate planning attorney? Well, I would never recommend my path as a career path. <laughs> so, and this is the sort of the catch twenty two is is I. I, I totally um, regret having to put my my family through that. You know, watching your husband or your father sit there and not be able to work a fork because it has too many moving parts, and that's not a great memory for my family. And being worried that I was on my path to killing myself, but my victory over over the over alcoholism it's been a great humbling factor. And you know, I've been very open in my recovery with my children, and I hope I am a you know, I'm, I, I can be a role model that they can overcome challenges in their lives as well. But my greatest weakness has become my greatest strength because the irony of this whole thing is that as a chaplain or as an estate planning attorney, we are now listening and talking to people in those most vulnerable, intimate moments. Whereas when we started this podcast, I told you I was to be seen and not heard. Now we are there to be heard. Mm. And, and and not just heard, but be present. You know, we call the chaplaincy a ministry of presence. Our mm. presence sometimes is the greatest gift that we can give to somebody is just being present. So as we talked about leaving it in the driveway as, as you get home from, from a tough day at the office or a tough day on the stock market or a tough client call, to be able to leave that behind and then go inside and be present. Um, that's been a that's been great. As far as keep staying sober, the greatest way you can stay sober is to be of service. The greatest mm-hmm. way you can is is uh, as uh, Bill Wilson's co-founder, Doctor Bob, said, the twelve steps are six words basically. It's trust God, clean house, and serve others. So mm-hmm. being of service is is one of the most important things I can do, including there at uh, at your brother's church as well. Yeah, and. Um you know, I myself have a have a loved one who has struggled with alcoholism, you know, much of his life. And it's, uh, you know, gone through so many different types of recovery programs mm-hmm. and had great, great moments, but it's still a struggle. And as, as a family member, I don't know what to do sometimes. I don't know what to do anymore, you know. Um, I mean, w- anything that you can say to those of us out there who have family members who can't overcome, who, who just, no matter what they do, you know, uh, just can't get over the hurdle. Yeah, let me talk at that. <laughs> Bill Wilson's wife. That's a tough question. Yeah, you. It, it is. And, and you know, one of the, some of the most memorable experiences I've had on a ride along as a chaplain is when we come into someone's house and there is someone there that's, let's say, less than sober. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of the family members is the one that called 911, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll tell the, the deputy, we'll make sure everything's okay. And, you know, and there's no danger there. And they'll go, hey, I got a chaplain with me. You want to talk to him? And essentially the message that I bring is, is one that they teach in Al-Anon, which is a group that Bill Wilson's wife founded. Mm. And there's uh, two practical things I would say. W- one is, and, it, and it's hard for family members, um, is the three C's. Look, you didn't create this mess. You can't cure it. And you certainly can't control it at this point. Mm. So that's the corollary to the powerlessness part for those of us that are addicts. 
is I couldn't control it in the end. So watching this mom, you know, die on line one, one or a sister on, on their brother, um, I want to remind them and let them know the reality of the situation. That is, you know, they didn't cause this addiction. Hmm. They can't cure it. And they certainly are unable to control it. Look at the situation. So then it's the three get-offs. It's hmm. like you, you're going to have to get off their back. You okay. have to get out of their way. And then, unfortunately, you have to get on with your life. And some of the best testimonies I've ever heard have actually been in Al-Anon meetings and it reminds those of us that was the drinker in the family, you know, the destruction that, that we can cause, but also hearing them come realize their powerlessness gives them freedom to go ahead and let that person follow their path, unfortunately, because very often it's a mom. I, it, it seems to be the mom that's on the call. And you can't, un, you can't unmom a mom. Yeah. Right, and you'll and people will say, "Well, you got a victim, and and you do. You've got to set your own boundaries, but you're still a mom. You're still a sister to this person. It's not enabling unless you're partying with them, <laughs> right? Yeah. But um, those have been some very touching calls. And then when someone in my position as a chaplain was someone of faith that has seen it come out the other end, um, we don't know when they're going to put down that shovel and stop digging, but you you do have to get on with your life and you do have to realize that you are powerless to control their addiction. And this leads, of course, to codependency issues and fixing. And, and you know, yes. you can see in a house where, where, the, where the, the, the couple, the family, there's just codependency circles going around. I was just on a scene not too long ago where a nine-year-old daughter was the adult in the house because everyone else was just in this codependent addictive cycle mm. and nothing can get done, right? So we call that adulting the kid, unfortunately. And I know some of your listeners have probably been that person. You grew up way too quick. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So the, the hope there is that they will find their way, as, as I did. They will, they will come to their own beach moment, and they will lay their hands open, and they will turn themselves over to it. I do want to say that the 12 steps are not necessarily the only way therapy can work. For those of your listeners that are in the financial industry, they know the name Mark Cuban, the owner of the of, of the basketball team, and, and of course the shark. Right, his brother yeah. Brian Cuban had a very public um, recovery path and has written a book on it. He's an attorney, and his book is called The Addicted Lawyer, and he documents his path, which was not a twelve step recovery path, but was rather through therapy. There's almost always a secondary issue, and his was body image, body dysmorphia yeah. issues, bulimia. Which led to uh, you know, my reading of the book was just a terrible cycle of, of anxiety and self doubt. Um, but he came out the other side and is quite an in demand speaker now. I would certainly recommend his book for a path through recovery. Um, cognitive behavior therapy can be very helpful. The steps mm -hmm. four and five in the 12 step program line up a little bit with that. But for those in your position, Al Anon's out there as, as yeah. well as, as therapy as well. All, all we can do with, with our loved ones is, is be there for them. And, and, and pray. Yeah. Um, those are some great, uh, resources. I know, you know, I actually had to call one of the re recovery programs after, a, a, my loved one had a relapse and, mm -hmm. um, you know, told them what was going on. And they just said, that person has to come to us. Um, uh, you have to have them contact us. We can't reach out to them. We can't do anything about that. So you're right. It's, it's on that person. Um, and it's, 
you can be there and, and love them and be there for them, but um, you can't force them to do anything. Nope. That's what I've learned. It's a tough and hard place to be, but this was really helpful, I think, for a lot of folks. Well, we're just about out of time. Mm-hmm. Tim, I'd like to thank you so much uh, for being on the show. You've got a great podcast voice. I think everyone will agree. Um, oh, thank and you. just thanks for <laughs> and thanks <laughs> for uh, you know just being so vulnerable. I know it's hard to talk about these things, but this is a, a very important issue, very important topic. And I uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. If if you'd like to reach out to Tim, you can reach him at Tim at brisson.law, B-R-I-S-S-O-N dot law. Um, If you have a struggle of your own and you'd wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at transparencywithdianab at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click on the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.